And Father, we do pray once again, Lord, just as we study your word, this portion of your scriptures, Lord, we ask that you'd give us insight, that you'd give us understanding, that you'd give us application. Father, we pray that our faith would be strengthened and increased as we spend time in your word. And we pray, Father, that you would please give us an appetite for your word, that we would enjoy it, that we'd love it, that we'd receive from it every time we open it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus, you know, he's been with his disciples and he's been preparing them for some time. He's told them that uh, they're heading up to Jerusalem, that he would be handed over to the Gentiles and crucified. But on the third day, he would rise again. And as we've noted, and I've, I've pointed out many, many times, it's apparent as you read the gospel account uh, accounts that um, they just, they weren't getting it. It was, you know, sometimes there are things maybe that are so difficult um, You just, you're not grasping what's being spoken. And that's what it seems like what was happening for, for uh, the disciples. Jesus was speaking very plainly, very clearly, and yet they seemed shocked when he told them, I'm going away. And we saw that last week in the first three verses of chapter 14, that Jesus was leaving them, he was going away, he was going to his father's house, and as He's going there. While he's there, he'd be preparing a place for them. And if he goes, he made it clear, if I go, I will come again, that I may receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And so, um, you know, they hear these words. And, and then Jesus added, and that's where our text begins today in verse 4. He says, and where I go, you know, and the way you know. Now, I wonder if when Jesus said that, if he, well, that's a dumb question. I was just about to ask a dumb question. Jesus knew that they did not understand what he was talking about. Jesus knew that they didn't know the way. Jesus knew that there would be confusion. In fact, Jesus knew, because it was apparent, but also Jesus is God, and so he knows all things. He knew that there would continue to be this confusion until the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, and then, of course, the coming of the Holy Spirit upon them. Um, guys, this is important. When we study the scriptures, you know, Many times we could look at the word of God and we could say, oh, gosh, I wish it was like it was in the book of Acts. Well, I do, too. But it can be as it was in the book of Acts. The only reason we see the things that we see in the book of Acts is because of the promise of the Father. The promise of the Father, the Spirit will come upon you. We're going to see it, especially in John's gospel account, and I'm excited to look at those scriptures concerning the Holy Spirit because Jesus was preparing them. You know, I'm going away, but it's for your benefit that I go away. If I don't go away, then the paracletus, the comforter, will not come. So it's, it's necessary that I go away, and he's explaining these things. And, of course, once you get to the book of Acts... On the day of Pentecost, they're waiting, they've been tarrying, waiting for what? Waiting for the promise of the Father. Holy Spirit comes upon them, 120 of them gathered in the upper rooms, 
upper room, excuse me, and they were never the same. I mean, 3,000 people come to faith in Christ on that day alone. And then it just keeps multiplying over and over and over again. By the way, it's the same spirit that dwells within you if you're a believer, if you've placed your faith in Christ. It's the one and same spirit. There's not a spirit of the early church and then a spirit, well, I guess there is a spirit, but we're not talking about that here. Biblically speaking, there, there's, there's, only one, there's only one spirit. He says, where I go, you know, and the way you know. And of course, Thomas, he protested. You know, you look at our account today, and, and we have Jesus, of course, he's, he's seen there. We see his words spoken. We see Thomas, so we know that Thomas was, was there. He was present. And then Philip, of course, Philip speaks as well. But we know that all the others were there as well. Judas is the only one that has departed. The others are gathered there. And uh, Jesus says, uh, listen, and where I go, you know, and the way you go, you know. And, and Thomas, he makes a statement. He says, Lord, we do not know where you're going. We don't, we don't have a clue where you're going. And then he asked a question. I don't know if it was a, a sincere question or if it was just really another statement put into a question form. How can we know the way? Again, this revealed their confusion about what Jesus was talking about, what was going to take place next, and so on and so forth. You know, guys, um, heaven. What do we know about heaven? We don't know much about heaven. Do you know that when John, so the same author of this gospel account, when he was caught up to heaven, so the very beginning of Revelation chapter 4, he hears a voice. It sounds like a trumpet. He's called up to heaven. Chapters 4 and 5, John is, is now recording what he saw in heaven. Then when you get to Revelation chapter uh, 21, 22, 20, kind of in there, you know. Uh, again, the scene is in heaven, and so John is, is recording what he saw in heaven. And as you look at what John had to write, we have that. Aren't you grateful for that, that we have that in our Bibles? He was using symbols and comparisons to describe what he was seeing. In other words, it's indescribable. But you know what he does describe? He describes what will not be, what will not be present in heaven. What will not be present in heaven, according to what John had seen in the book of Revelation, is that there will be no death, there will be no sorrow, There'll be no crying, there'll be no pain, there'll be no night, there'll be no darkness. Heaven is going to be glorious. Do you have a longing to be there? I have a longing to be there. Listen, it's not a death wish, it's an it's a abundant life wish. You know, I remember hearing the phrase, I don't know who coined the phrase, who said the phrase, it's really a silly phrase, you know. They're so spiritually minded or heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. You know, I've never met a Christian that is so heavenly minded that they are not earthly, <laughs> any earthly good. I think just the opposite. 
I think people that are looking forward to the coming of the Lord and, of course, the things that he's going to do here on the earth, but, but also, you know, if the Lord comes for his church, that imminent return for the, uh, of, of the Lord for his church, you know, there should be a longing in our heart. We should live our lives each and every day as if this could be the day that Jesus might come for me. As Christians, you know, none of us have a guarantee if we have tomorrow. I mean, you know, I was talking to someone recently, and, and they were tell, telling me about their parent dying and then their, their mother also having serious health issues. And I asked the question, I said, so are they, are they elderly? Are they, you know, pretty old? And, and they told me the age, and it was my age, you know, and the age of my wife. And I thought, oh, you know, you never know. Things could happen so quickly. Um, but there should be this heavenly-mindedness. Uh, where's my Lord? My Lord is in heaven. Now, he's with me. He's with us. You know, wherever two or more are gathered in our name, there he is in the midst of us. But don't you envy what, what, what John saw when he was caught up to heaven? And Paul, we have no idea what he saw because he said, I, I can't write about it. But he saw things that could not be expressed when he was caught up to the third heaven, heaven. Heaven is a place for prepared people. Do you know that in John's gospel account, the word, our English word, believe, is used over a hundred times. See, that's why people, when you're sharing the gospel with someone and, and you, you pray with them and, and maybe they're a seeker and, and they say to you, well, where should I start reading in the Bible? And most of us say, start reading the gospel of John. Why do we do that? Because it's, it's all about believing. It's all about receiving. It's all about seeing. It's all about knowing. It's all about Christ. And, of course, the other Gospels are as well. But, but John really emphasizes the importance of believing. And so I want to emphasize that this morning. You know, I did it to the first service. First service, I recognize every person that comes to the first service. It's the same faces every, every Sunday, you know. And, but I still say things like this. I encourage people. I exhort people. Are you saved? Have you truly placed your faith in Christ? It's, you know, it's, it's, salvation is not based upon being born into the right family. Salvation is not based upon, you know, being an American. Remember when people used to think that? Like somehow our nation is a godly nation. We are a post-godly nation. We are a post-Christian nation. Anyone paying attention can see that. But salvation is based on faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. Faith. Do you believe in Jesus? Have you placed your faith in him? Because Jesus goes on to answer the question. Well, he already answered the first part, where he was going. He's going to his father's house. But, but how can we know the way? I'm glad that Thomas asked that question so that we could have in our Bibles the direct and clear and simple answer from Jesus. The answer is... Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. I am the truth. In John chapter 8, verse 32, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Do you remember the context of that? He was speaking of 
He was speaking to Jews who believed. That's what it says. That's the context. He was speaking to Jews who believed. And he's talking about the importance of abiding in his word. And so you might look at that and say, so, so his word is truth. Yes, yes, his word is truth. But based upon what he says here in chapter 14 of John, he is truth. See, the, the verse takes on a, a different weight, <laughs> a, a different meaning, if you will. John 14, 6, I am the truth. It's not enough to know about him. That's not enough. A lot of people know about him. You know, I was raised in a religious home. I was raised in what would be considered a Christian home. I went to parochial school. You know, I've mentioned it many times, went to mass, so that's church. We went to church, the kids did. We went six days a week. If you went to parochial school, you had mass every every weekday, you know, and then you had Saturdays off, and then Sunday, of course, you were back in there. And so you talk about exposure to knowledge. Well, we had it. But there were so many of us once we became older, you know. I, I thought it was interesting as a teenager when I got involved in a lot of the isms, you know, the uh, Krishna and, and the, you know, mind thoughtfulness and the meditation and the gurus and this type of thing. I always thought it was interesting that the people, kind of my peers that were interested in that, they were either Catholic or Jewish. It's a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, you know. For the Jew, of course, we know that they're going to get it. They're going to place their faith in Christ. They're going to see the one they have peers, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for their only son. So we know what is promised for them. We're not so clear on what's promised for the Catholic who trust in religion, formality, or whatever it might be, your birthright, whatever it might be, your baptism as an infant, whatever it might be. There's no such promise for them. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This is, by the way, the sixth uh, I am statement of Jesus found in John's gospel account. Remember, we've, I've pointed this out as we've been going through John's gospel account that, that John, as he wrote his unique gospel account, he centers it around seven signs or miracles of Jesus and seven I am statements of Jesus. And so this is the sixth I am statement. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus. It's not enough just to know about him. There's a lot of people who know about him. There's a lot of people who say, oh, I believe in Jesus. If you were to press it, what could you tell me about Jesus? I mean, even as an adult, you know, when people would share the gospel with me and as a young adult and, and, and people would say, well, do you believe in Jesus? Yes, of course I believe in Jesus, you know. Could you tell me something about him? Could you tell me something that you've read in his word about him. I, I had no idea. No idea. See, words are cheap, I guess is what I'm saying. And that's really what John goes on to say in his first epistle. Words are cheap. You could say, but the reality 
is in the believing. The reality is in the, you know, the, the resting in, the trusting upon. That's where the reality is found. A.W. Tozier, he wrote this. He says, the Bible is not an end in itself, but a means to bring us to an intimate and satisfying knowledge of God, that we may enter into him, that we may delight in his presence, may taste and know the inner sweetness of the very God himself in the core and center of our hearts. End of quote. I love Tozier for reasons like that. He was a wordsmith, in my opinion. It's not enough just to know the Bible. And I'm saying this as someone who absolutely loves the Bible. If you were here on Wednesday night, in fact, I was wondering, why, why do I go off on these things? Why do I go off on the, the Bible, the Bible, the Bible? You know, when I talk about the Bible, sometimes I get sidetracked more than just simply teaching the Bible. But I love the Bible. Uh, I hope we all love the Bible. When I was born again, that was the very first miracle, that was the very first manifestation that I saw in my life is that all of a sudden, it was a, it was a divine thing. It was something, it was a gift from God. He gave me an appetite for something I had never read before. He gave me a love for the word of God. I just wanted to know it, I just wanted to read it. I, and, and, and I'm thankful that it continues to the present day. I was thinking, you know, I prayed, I don't know if I prayed it at this service, I prayed it at the first service, that um, we would all have a love for the word of God, and that as we're in the word of God, that the Lord would speak to us through and from his word. Because I think that's when it becomes exciting. On Wednesday night, we looked at Psalm 118, and we were talking about just kind of the, you know, special things about Psalm 118. And Psalm 118, who wrote Psalm 118? I don't know who wrote Psalm 118, but it was all about Jesus. Psalm 118. There's the apparent scriptures that are about Jesus' triumphal entry. I mean, the very quote that we read in the gospel accounts come from Psalm 118. But uh, the fact that he was rejected, you know, uh, by the Jews. Well, that's found, that's clear, that's repeated a number of times in the New Testament. But there are other places where we saw Jesus, uh, maybe a reference to him in Golgotha or on the pavement as he's being tormented by the soldiers and all. After study, Nate pointed out to me something that I did not see and so I did not mention it. And I hope he'll share that on Wednesday night as, as uh, he'll be teaching this, this coming Wednesday kind of a little snippet of things that he gleaned from Psalm 118. The point is, is that after study, there were a few folks that came up, and one fellow came up, and, and he's excited, and he's da-da-da-da-da, and he's sharing some things with me. And he's sharing some things with me that I had never known before. I'd never heard that before. And it just piqued my interest, and I said, repeat that, repeat that, you know, repeat the old, you know. I want to hear this again, you know. And so we repeated it, and I said, oh, man, oh, that's so good. That's so and he's excited, now I'm getting excited. And I looked at him, I said, you're caught, aren't you? And he knew exactly what I meant. This, this love for the Word of God, you're caught when the Word of God is speaking to you, and you realize this, is, this book is alive, just like it says it is. It's alive. It's pertinent for today. It's not so some ancient manuscript that has no relevance upon my life today. It is for my life today. It speaks to me today. 
but it's a means to bring us to a deeper relationship with the Lord. Wouldn't it be ridiculous if we bowed down and worshipped our Bibles? That'd be weird. That'd be really weird. I remember years ago, you guys know I tell the stories quite often when I was a teenager and just involved in different things. And I'll tell you, I think that the devil kind of puts a target on you. If, if like drugs or that type of thing was kind of your thing, your temptation, you probably had people come out of the blue and uh, want to share their stuff with you. You know what I mean? For me, it was kind of the spiritual hunt. I just wanted to find spiritual truth. And I think I had this target on me that no one could see but the devil and his minions, you know, and, and all these different cults and everything. And they would just come out and they would just, you know, approach me and everything. And I remember one night we were skateboarding. Mike Saylor and I, we were surfers. So when we weren't surfing, we were skating, um, skateboarding. And this car pulls up. It was, you know, 8 o'clock at night. And these women come out of the car, Asian women, and they said in kind of broken English, come with us, come with us. Now, this was the 70s, so we went with them. And um, we went to the house, and, and they immediately, everyone was seated on the floor, and, and uh, there's Mike and I with our long hair, these surfer guys, and they hand us some beads, and they show us how to rub them together, and... As we're rubbing together, they began to uh, speak a, a mantra, you know, these words that meant nothing to us. And we're kind of getting excited. What's going to happen next, you know? And it's blah, blah, blah. And there's a little altar set up. And then they open up the doors to the altar. And there it was. A scroll of something that we couldn't read. We just kind of looked at each other. What are we doing? I have no idea, but let's just hang out and see what happens, you know. The word of God, it's a means to bring us to a deeper relationship with him, with the Lord. That's why we love it. If we don't worship it, we love it. It is a revelation of God to humanity, how blessed we are. Jesus says, I am the truth. Jesus says, I am the life. In John chapter 1, verse 4, I mean, John opens his gospel account with, in him, speaking of Jesus, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. I think of before I knew Christ, I was in darkness. I knew I was in darkness. I didn't want to live anymore at the age of 17 because I was living in darkness. And I'm so thankful that at the age of 20, the light of Jesus came shining in. Jesus says, I am the way. We know from the book of Acts, Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Now, or nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus didn't say, I am a way. You know, oh, grasshopper, many roads lead to heaven, you know. <laughs> no, no. There's one road. There's one way. In fact, Jesus said it. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, 
He said, enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. Who even find it? Yeah, who even find it? You say, well, how do you know? What was he talking about, the gate? John chapter 10, I am the door. That's one of the I am's, or I am the gate, depending upon what translation of the Bible you have. We know that the early church, the early church was known at first as the way. I like that. Well, I used to like it. I'll explain while I, why I have a problem with it now. But we know from Acts chapter 19, verse 23, and about that time there arose a great commotion about the way, the way. Do you think that they got that title from what Jesus said here? I am the way, the truth, and the life. I, I can't think of where else they would get it. Jesus is the way, they would preach. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the way. He is the only way. I said that I, I, I love that, you know, the way. Of course, they were first called Christians in Antioch, and that was used in a derogatory way, you know. And that's what kind of has stuck. That's what we're referred to ourselves now as, as a Christian. Some of us, maybe we're a little bit more particular, and we say followers of Jesus because we want to make it clear there's a lot of people who profess to be Christians, that they, but they haven't really, they're not really. Their, their, their words are one thing, but their life is another thing, you know doesn't seem to be any fruit of that abiding in the vine. Back in the Jesus movement, you know, it's interesting. Um, right down in Southern California where Calvary Chapel was, Newport Beach area, uh, Calvary Chapel, little church, 25 people, you know, the Lord just started moving. Young people were coming to faith in Christ. I mean, it was just one thing after another. But there were a lot of Jesus people at that time. And there was a group in that same area. I mean, right down by Calvary Chapel there with Pastor Chuck. And there was a group, and they called themselves The Way. And, of course, they're known now as just simply being a, a horrible, perverse group um, that uh, saw their leader as a prophet, infallible. Uh, they're known for being pedophiles. They would do flirty fishing, so they would send women out to get men to come in and men out to get women to come in. I mean, it was just debauchery. So it's sad that the way uh, has been tainted because of a group like that. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus doesn't just simply teach us the way or point us to the way. Jesus himself is the way. And Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Very narrow, isn't it? Very, very narrow. This wipes out any other proposed way to heaven. Now, you might say, Dan, you don't need to belabor this. You know, we're Christians. We're believers here. We, we know, we know. 
Well, if you're believers here and you know, you know, you know what's happening within Christianity in the West. You know that there is this push, there is this movement. There are people who are deconstructing their faith. There are people who, uh, they're not deconstructing, but they say, in essence, there are no absolutes. What is sin to you might not be sin to me. There are no absolutes. They might say, you know, use whatever means you need to use. All that matters is that people come to faith in Christ at the end. We live in an age where there's not just many views when it comes to, uh, you know, the way to heaven, even within the church, sadly. But we live in a day and age where there are many Jesuses. Every guru that I followed spoke about Jesus, but it was surely not the Jesus of the Bible. You know, one of the fastest growing uh, denominations, churches, you know, is Mormonism. It's a different Jesus. It's not the Jesus of the Bible. That Jesus was the brother of, spirit brother of Lucifer. Well, where do you get that? We surely don't see that in the scriptures, you know. So it becomes very confusing, especially for people who are genuinely seeking and they just want to know the truth and... But it's even more confusing when you have said Christians that in essence say, listen, as long as you're sincere, do you, do you hear it, Steve? As long as you're sincere. Or we give people, you know, I, 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 I think he believes. I, I, you know, I just feel in my heart that, that, they're, that they'll go to heaven when they die, you know. And we make these judgment calls that we have no right making because no one knows the heart of any other person. In fact, we don't even know our own heart. Jeremiah tells us, and we hear that one too, they've got a good heart. And Jeremiah tells us, as a prophet of God, that the heart is desperately wicked. Do you see what I'm saying? So there's this conflict and this pushback that's happening all the time within Christianity. We don't see it as often as we used to, but remember the bumper stickers, coexist. Coexist. C-O-X-S-I-S-T. You have the crescent moon, and you have the star for Islam. You have, of all things, the pentagram for Wicca. <laughs> you have the star of David for Judaism. You have the karma wheel dotted with dots over the eye for Buddhism. You have the Tao system for Taoism. And then you have the cross, of course, for Christianity. And the message is clear. All roads lead to God. Find one that works for you. Think of how confusing it is for people who want to know the truth. This is why it's so important for God's people to be sharing the biblical gospel and to do it patiently and lovingly and consistently and it's so important I'm so glad that I had people in my life that were you know I even had strangers in my life that would share the gospel with me I'm so glad that that was so 
Because it's like a minefield out there for people today. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth. No one comes to the Father except through me. So absolute. Now, it goes on in verse 7, and you have, if you have, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it will be sufficient for us. Jesus says, have you been with me so long, and, and yet you have not known me? It's been said that, that this gentle rebuke from Jesus, and I think it probably was a gentle rebuke directed toward Philip, but it's been pointed out that this gentle rebuke might be spoken to many churchgoers today. After all this time, do you still not know Jesus? Who is Jesus, you know? What a confusing time we live in. I'll tell you, I, and I've mentioned it many times, but when I was born again, and I, you know, I can't explain it. I just know, I just know that I said, Lord, save me. Whatever I said, I don't even know what I said. I, I just know that I was at the end of my rope. I had, I'd kind of, you know, I knew that none of the other stuff was real. I thought if Catholicism is the answer, oh gosh, help us. Because there's no power in it. It's all ritual. Do you know, you might not know this about Roman Catholics, but you know, there are certain things that are important in the Mass, and the number one important thing in the Mass is the Eucharist. So, you know, if you're late getting to Mass, but you make it for Eucharist, you're good to go. I was talking to Ernie, one of our guys, on uh, Christmas Eve, and you know, we had our Christmas Eve service on Christmas morning because figured it'd be hard to get folks to come back in the evening. And, and I was talking to him. He was raised Roman Catholic. And I said, you know, Ernie, I remember um, as a young, young teenager when I really became disillusioned with Catholicism. And he says, what was that? And I said, midnight mass. Christmas Eve, midnight mass. The church would be so full that it would bleed outside. You'd have people standing outside. And usually, you know, we'd get there late, and so we would be one of those, you know, families standing outside of the church. You know, they would open up the windows. This is Southern California, so, you know, even at Christmas time, it's rarely that cold. And you'd be standing next to someone reeking of alcohol and kind of looking like they might be on a ship. But they're there. They're there because it's Christmas Eve, doggone it. And any good Catholic comes to church on Christmas Eve. Let's go up and get that Eucharist. 
the body of Christ. And I remember as a young teenager thinking, the hypocrisy of this, this is so gross. This is so disgusting. You say, why do you share that? Because, you know, people are watching, and especially young people are watching. And folks, we might not be Roman Catholics, but, but we have young people watching us. The young people might be your own children. And, and, and if we're not careful, we could even be stumbling them because it's like, well, mom and dad, you know, we, we go to church and we, and we do this and, and, you're, and you're this way when we go to church. But when we're at home, man, it's a completely different story. And I don't know how many times I've heard people say, yeah, you know, yeah, our family, we're a Christian family, but just in name only. You guys know people like that. You say, what are you doing, Dan? Laying a guilt trip upon us. You always like to lay a guilt trip. I'm not laying a guilt trip upon anyone. I'm just simply saying that there is a responsibility. There is a calling. There is a, there is a standard that we're to live by. It's not a standard that we fake. You know what I'm saying? Because if we're faking it, it's going to be seen. Our kids, young people, they can see the real deal and they can see the fake. But we need to be people who are in love with Jesus. We need to be people who talk about Jesus, not just when we go to church. We need to be people who honor his word, that we just don't say, oh, that doesn't matter. We need to be people who say, I believe in the Bible. Yes, I believe in the Bible. What, Johnny's looking at porn? You know, hey, boys will be boys. I looked at porn when I was a kid. Come on, what's the big deal? Susie's pregnant? Maybe we should rethink the whole abortion thing because, you know, after all, God doesn't want my daughter to have a life of difficulties and hardship. You say, Dan, you know the people reason like that. Rather than saying, Lord, here we are. We live in such a different time in a bad way, but we live in a different time in a good way. You know, <laughs> there was a time when you wouldn't see unwed mothers because they would be sent away. I love it when unwed mothers come to our church. Oh, that's a bad example. You know, they could, they could be a bad example to the young girls in the church. Oh, really? I, I, don't, I don't think that they might be a good example of, you know... <laughs> Be careful. Don't, don't go there. Don't do that. And I just think of, you know, the gospel. It's a message of redemption. It's a message that there's hope for sinners, and we're all sinners. And if we fake it, and if we want to play religion, and if we want to, you know, kind of look like we've got it all together, when in reality, anyone that's lived for any amount of time, we know the sin, even as believers, that's there. It's like that sin crouching, wanting to take control of Cain, you know. Cain, do the right thing, Cain. And we wrestle with that. The wrestling, the civil war that we deal with on a daily basis. The spirit and the flesh. And who's going to win? My pastor used to say, 
The spirit in the flesh, now this isn't politically correct, so excuse me, but this was back in the early 80s, so we weren't concerned about politically correct. But he used to say, they're like two fighting dogs. The one you feed is the one that will win. And that's true. Guys, do you know the word no? Have I been with you so long and yet you do not, you have not known me? The word no, it's used 141 times in John's gospel account. We see this in, in John chapter 17, verse 3. Let me read the verse to you. And I know I'm out of time, so I will, I will wrap this up. But Jesus is praying and he says, and this is eternal life. Listen, and this is eternal life that they may know you. The one or the only true God and Jesus whom you have sent. The question is asked, what's eternal life? The answer is quickly given. Life that never ends. And John would say, no. Eternal life. Eternal life is knowing Jesus, it's knowing the Father, it's relationship. Guys, it's not religion, it's relationship. My father, I'm sure he beat his head against the wall. You know, when I got saved, I was so zealous and I would share the gospel with him all the time and we would argue all the time whenever I'd share the gospel with him because he's my dad and I'm his son. There's nothing I'm gonna tell my dad that he doesn't already know. And I would talk to my dad. I said, you know, dad, your thing is religion. Your thing is a system. Your thing, you're trusting in, you're trusting in a church, dad. And I would say things to my father like, dad, did the Roman Catholic Church die on the cross for your sins? Did the Pope die upon the cross for your sins? Did the priest, did do all of these, that we have this hierarchy within this religious system, did they die on the cross for your sins? No, of course not. Christ died on the cross for your sins. It's a relationship with Christ. And he used, to, he used to flip out when I would say relationship because the person who's not born again cannot understand how a person, how a mere sinful person could have a relationship with God. It doesn't make sense. That's why we need to appease the angry God through sacrifices and offerings and our good works and these types of, appease him. He's angry, coward, you know. And yet that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The Apostle Paul, in his epistles, throughout his epistles, in Christ, in Jesus, in the Lord, he wants the believer to see themselves, their new identity, as a born-again, born-of-the-spirit person. I'm not my own agent any, any longer. I, I have an advocate. I am in the Lord. I am in Christ. I am in Jesus. I have the spirit of the living God dwelling within me. Does that make me perfect? No, far from it. But I have the conviction that comes from the spirit of God and the word of God. 
I have the Spirit of God living within me, so I don't need to, you know, go through the Bible and, and just say, I'm, you know, the letter of the law, the letter of the law, the letter of the law. I don't see anything written in here. I don't see the word abortion in here, so I don't know that abortion is necessarily a bad thing. I don't see pharmacy here. Well, it is in there, by the way. It's pharmacia. It's not pharmacia. That's the drug thing. <laughs> it's what's it called? The uh, pornea for fornication and and all of this. So we look at these things, and we're being governed by the indwelling Spirit of God. And John's going to go on to record the many things that Jesus said about the Spirit of God. So I know I, I'm done. I'm out of time. Surprise, surprise. I want to say this, so 2024 is going to be a difficult year. I base that upon the fact that we've been living <laughs> a number of years that have been strange and, and difficult. You know, you know where I stand. I hope that you stand because it's a biblical stance with Israel. And uh, we, many Bible students believe that this whole thing with Israel is going to divide the church. We have many people who um, profess to be believers, and yet they do not know Israel's place in God's plan. They have somehow read the scriptures and come away believing that the church has replaced Israel. And the church has not replaced Israel. Israel is Israel. The church is a church. Two different entities. God knows how to deal with both separately. But we watch what's happening in churches. You know, the anti-Semitism that we see growing, it's dividing the church. Tracy and I were talking about this yesterday. Um, Guys, do your homework. You know, we look back at the Holocaust, horrible things that have happened. It was aided. There was a theology behind Holocaust. You understand that, don't you? A theology. There were church leaders, Catholicism, the Catholic Church, but also the Protestant Church. There was a theology behind the Holocaust. It's a theology of demons. It's a doctrine of demons. It's not from the Bible. So we need to be careful that we are landing on the right side, biblically speaking. We need to be people who are growing deeper in our knowledge of the word of God and our relationship with the Lord. Because things are changing at a rapid pace. Our country, you know, we're watching it. You don't have to be very old to see the difference that's taken place in a fairly short period of time. But we are diminishing as a nation. I know that some of you hate to hear that because your hope is America. My hope is not America. My hope is Christ. But to whom much has been given, much is expected. I shared with the first service, you know, you just look at history. You don't have to go way back. You look at Great Britain. You look at how God used Great Britain. You look at the missionaries that went all throughout the world, missionaries preaching the gospel from Great Britain. You look at the UK today. 
What is the percentage of believers in the UK as a whole, the UK? It's very, very low. Islam has, 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 has taken over. The lampstand has been removed. The light has been removed for a long time. In England, throughout the UK. But that's okay, going back, not that far. America stepped in. America, we became the leaders in sending missionaries throughout the world sharing the gospel. We stepped up. We were blessed by God because of it. And yet we have departed. We are a post-Christian nation. And I'm not angry at anybody because of that. I'm just simply saying that that's how it is. So we say, what do we do? We're watching our nation diminish in authority, in influence. What are we to do? We're to, we're to take seriously our calling. Are you the remnant, the faithful remnant? The church of, you come on up, bud, okay? The church of Philadelphia, church, little strength, but you've endured to the end. I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming upon the whole earth. I mean, the way I look at it, you're either in the Church of Laodicea, the Church of People's Rights, I would like to vote on this, or you're in the Church of Philadelphia. We don't claim to have much strength, but we're being faithful to cling to the Word of God and the, the calling of God. And God is going to use his people in great ways. As we're watching our nation diminish morally, politically, in all areas, we're watching these pockets of God's grace in the strangest places of the world. Iran. Iran, we're told, are experiencing a spiritual revival. People are coming to faith in Christ. Young people are coming to faith in Christ. They're disillusioned. It's not a bad thing to be disillusioned. They're disillusioned with their government and their powers. They're not in agreement with the hatred of their leaders toward Israel. Do you remember, guys, it wasn't that long ago that Jews used to vacation in Iran? And now Iran wants to wipe them into the sea? I mean, things change at such a rapid pace. In France, I just heard this. Nate and our daughter Marielle, when they were in Bible college, they went to France on a mission trip. They were in Hungary at Bible College. They went to France. Riots were breaking out. Muslims, you know, on the street. It was very, very dangerous. They were told not to go out. They went out anyway because they're American Christians, you know. And the Lord used them. But supposedly, the Lord is moving in France. Rejoice in that. God doesn't want any to perish, but all to come to repentance. So guys, we could either put our hands to the plow, not turn back, keep moving forward, carry out the mission that the Lord has given you, whatever that looks like, you know, whatever that looks like for you. If you have no clarity on it, pray, Lord, give me clarity. What do you want me to do, Lord? And he will. And 
and to be faithful until he comes. Amen? Okay. Let's stand.